Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Uh, Verses 1 through 6. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water, of the spring of the water of life, without payment. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. I'm going to go through um, this passage today, and I've just decided to go through it with three questions. One, what is he talking about? Um, Two... Is this just wishful thinking? And three, what do we do in the meantime? And so that's how I'm going to proceed through the passage, starting with what is he, what is he talking about? And um, this week my mind went to a book that I got years ago um, called God is Not One. And this was kind of more in the day of the new atheists, if you remember, like Richard Dawkins writing a book called God is Not Good that was, you know, a really big cultural thing for a minute. And, um, and this guy is a, is a religion professor at Boston university, but describes himself, I think he has a Catholic background, but describes himself as a religiously confused and still, still describes himself that way. But he, um, the book was interesting because what, his line in the beginning is that the idea of religious tolerance has turned into a religious straitjacket. And he says that the idea that all religions say basically the same thing disrespects all the religions because all the religions, he's a religion professor, says, he said they say basically different very different things. They all have a different idea of sin and salvation, of heaven and hell. So he says what the world's religions share is not so much a finish line as a starting point. And where they begin is with this simple observation. Something is wrong in the world. So in the Hopi language, there's a word that says life is out of balance. He said Shakespeare's Hamlet says something's rotten not only in the state of Denmark, but in the state of human existence. Um, Hindus say that we're in the most degenerate age of Cosmic histories. Buddhists say that human existence is pockmarked by suffering. He said, religious folk worldwide agree that something has gone awry. They part company, however, when it comes to stating just what has gone wrong, and they diverge sharply when they move from diagnosing the human problem to prescribing how to solve it. Christians see the problem and salvation, sin is the problem, and salvation from sin is the, as the religious goal. Buddhists see suffering as the problem, and liberation from suffering is their goal. If the practitioners of the world's religions are mountain climbers, then they start on very different mountains, climbing very different peaks, using very different tools and techniques in their ascents. This series has been about presence, the presence of God, but it's really been a sweep through the Bible, 
saying this is what, what Christian theology says is the problem and the search and the solution and the new setting, and today we're at the end of that. And so um, we saw in the very beginning that, that what we're made for ultimately is to be in God's perfect presence, and that was the Garden of Eden, Adam and, Eve in, Adam, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, in the presence of God. And in God's presence, they knew um, what I would condemn are the two, they knew the answers to the two questions that we all ask ourselves at a deep level every single day, am I loved and am I good? And God said, you're very good. And they had no doubt that God loved them. Um, and they had perfect harmony with God, with each other, um, with their own self and with the creation. And then sin enters the picture. And sin is basically us wanting to be God, to take the place of God, to take control of things in a way that only God can have control of things. And presence is interrupted by sin. And so our relationship with God erodes and our relationships with each other erode. And we feel shame within our own self. And quickly, um, that leads to hell. And that's the story of Noah in the Bible. And there are consequences to it. And then in Abraham, God says, I have a plan to restore you to my perfect presence. And this plan's going to take some time to work out, <laughs> but it's going to happen. And so then the rest of the series is really living in this imperfect presence. And the Old Testament, he gives us the law to show us how much we can't, we can't be who we're supposed to be. We just can't do it. And he gives them the sacrificial system in the law to say, hey, there's consequences to you not being able to sin, to you not being able to live up to who you are. Um, and uh, he gives them the tabernacle and, the, and the, eventually the temple, which is like God's presence in their midst, but God's presence on God's terms and displaying what his terms are. And then in Christ, he comes and shows us what perfect presence looks like. And kind of an underplayed part of Jesus' story is how he's always hanging out with his father and always praying with his father because he has perfect presence with his father. And that's why he lives the life that we were made to live. And then he dies, um, lives a sinless life, and then dies a death that is the atonement for our sins. Like he pays the consequences and rises from the dead to show us that he has the power over sin and death. And then, this, and then he, it's, the Bible says that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that spirit is in us. And Paul says something that is, just to a Jewish mind especially, insane in the New Testament. He says, you, there's no temple anymore. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. Like he dwells in you. And, um, and then Dan talked last week about the church as the body of Christ. And so we embody Christ's presence to each other. And we're supposed to experience that presence in the presence of the church. And the world is supposed to experience it too. And here we get to the end. And he says, I am going to restore that perfect presence. So what's he talking about? He is going to finish the job that he started at the beginning. He's going to complete the promise. He's going to eliminate sin. And he's going to restore us. To, our, to the perfect presence of the Lord, and it will be beyond our imagination. Um, most people that I've read take it literally, and I think it's meant to be taken literally. So um, one guy, a guy named Randy Alcorn, who's a pastor in Portland, he's actually, Nate Anderson grew up in a church that Randy Alcorn was a pastor at, but like I knew him before I knew Nate, just knew the name because he's, great. And he wrote a big book about heaven. Um, 
and, uh, and he's probably thought about this and read scripture about it as much as anybody I know. And so he writes, you see that it's an explicit statement that heaven will be relocated from where it is now, what we call the present heaven or the intermediary heaven, as some theologians call it. And he's going to bring heaven down to earth, literally heaven on earth. Um, and so he says, we can't make it heaven on earth. Human beings won't make it heaven and earth, but God will bring heaven down to earth. And in the passage, um, John goes on to describe the dimensions of the city. So uh, it's the Apostle John that's writing the book of Revelation in a vision um, from an angel. And he says, The one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, so it's a square. Its length, the same as its width. And he measured the city with this rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal, and he measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which was also an angel's measurement. So human measurement and an angel's measurement, which again, I think it's meant to be taken literally. Um, I, I double-checked this recently, but I thought about this previously. Like, I read that and thought, what is that, 12,000 stadia? If you, after church, get on Highway 40 and just start going west to about Amarillo, Texas, that is about 12,000 stadia. And then take a right, which there's no direct route, but take a right and find your way to Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada, which is in the middle of nowhere. And then take another right and go to the southern tip of the Hudson Bay. Like there's nothing there but elk and hockey players, you know, middle of Canada. And then take another right and find your way back down to Raleigh. That's 12,000 stadia square. And a wall... That's 144 cubits tall. So Trump's wall got nothing on this wall, right? This is a big wall. And gates, just like the present Jerusalem. And I remind you that I, I thought about this years ago too, and I said this in a sermon a couple months ago, that if you took all 8 billion people and just wanted to give them a couple square feet, get them in the same place, because I thought maybe God wants to get them like a snow globe, shake them up and just disperse us in different ways, because it'd be fun. You could fit them all in Rhode Island. And this is a lot bigger than that. So there's some leg room in the city of God, and there's layers. So one person suggested maybe, like, if it's a cube, like, that it's layers, and it could be, like, um, for me, the Jetsons. If you remember the Jetsons, where they're, like, flying around. I don't know what it's like if you're younger. Like, Little Einstein's was my favorite kid show of my kids', kids shows. Um, but so there's a lot of space in that. And I think we're meant to contemplate it like that. Uh, the passage says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying that, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be as their God. And I think this, we're meant to take this literally. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more and neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. No crying. No, nothing to lament. Nothing to mourn. How would you like to not have things to lament? How would you like to not experience pain? To not worry about death. I'm not, I, like how much what percent of our time do we exert on those things? <laughs> Pain and lament and anxiety um, and death, like at some low level. 
I'm not sure what we do. But he says those things literally will pass away. Now, is this just wishful thinking? Um, Because I kind of hear it. You know, I sense it. Um, I hear it in my own head. Uh, That's just for the week. I'm dealing with real life. I don't have time for those fantasies. Um, At a minimum, in the reality that we live in, it sure seems too good to be true. Uh, I find myself, and this is an observation personally, but also just around me, um, so I'm getting older, but not that old, you know. But the older people get, the less idealistic they are. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that is, so, and I'm not making a political statement, but people tend to trend from liberal to conservative over with age. Not 100%, but like if you look at people from age 20 to age 80, there's usually a 20-point swing from liberal to conservative over the same population. Different, start at different levels and different ages, you know what I mean, or periods of time. Um, but they do. And um, again, I'm not, li- we need liberals and conservatives. Liberals want to liberate us from things that are bad in culture. We just celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Thank God he wanted to liberate us from racism. Conservatives want to conserve things that are good. I think most of the time, like, there's a middle ground that we just have a hard time reaching because we want to win and our identity's wrapped up in it. So, Again, but there are some, I did hear a stain once that a liberal is a conservative that hasn't gotten mugged at, and I thought that was kind of funny. And, um, and so the older I get, the older I get, don't worry about all that, the older I get, the more I think two competing things. One is like, let's deal with reality and not hypotheticals. But then I think, but we can't, I can't fix this, and we can't fix this. And so we better hope there's something else that can. And that we can't fix this can lead to like a cynicism or it can lead to a despair. Or biblically, if we press in, it can lead to a hope and to pressing our hope into what the Bible says is true. And so this isn't wishful thinking. It's like he anticipates the thought because he says, and he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write it down. These things are trustworthy and true. Is it wishful thinking? No. These things are trustworthy and true. And then he said, it's already done. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I'm doing this. And he wants us to have full confidence that this is true. Now, another observation that I made over time, and I've thought about this so much, is that people already think this is true. They just can't put details to it or don't think about it too much because eternity is a really hard thing to think about. But people already believe that there's, we're going to a better place. Like that when this life is over, that generally people are going to go to a different place and it's going to be better than this place. We fantasize about justice. Like so many of our stories are about justice. They're all crime shows and cop shows. And at the end, like the crime gets solved because we know there's, that there's good and evil and there's justice necessary. As much as like, like we kind of live things out like it's all relative, our, our art says, no, it's not. <laughs> like there's bad guys and we need to get them. And we think that's going to happen at some point. Um, we fantasize about being loved perfectly. Uh, and man, I don't know, whether that's the Hallmark Channel or honestly, pornography. Like at some level, 
That's about a fantasy about being loved perfectly because we're made to be loved perfectly. I think the vast majority of people, and I read these studies every couple years, if not months, like 90% of people still believe in God. 86% of people believe in heaven. So they believe in an, or an afterlife, an afterlife. And so we do, we just fundamentally believe there's something more than all this. Um, fewer people believe in hell. So that percentage usually drops by about 20% of people that believe in hell. And then I really looked for this week. I was like, I wonder what percentage of people believe they're going to hell. And it's like one half of 1%. <laughs> now, fair enough. But like what it says is we, we think there's a better place that we are going to. Um, uh, and it, the, I think the difficulty comes when you try and put details to it. But really, when you have the guts to put details of it, and the Bible has the guts to put details to it. And so streets of gold and a wall of, like, gems and crystals and, you know, floating around like angels. People think that's ridiculous. Um, but then they leave it so vague that it doesn't really have an impact on our daily life when I think it's supposed to have a big impact on our daily life. And the gap in everybody's thinking, I think, that doesn't think biblically, is why do they expect that things would be better there than they are here? And they don't have a good reason for it. Like, we've proven ourselves incapable of making things there better than they are here. And the passage says, he is the one that is making all things new, and he will wipe away every tear, and he is going to eliminate death, and he's going to take away your, your mourning and your crying and your pain. He's going to do it. Um, we talked about this over the years a handful of times. Ken's the first one that figured this out. There's a, there's a sociologist from Notre Dame named Christian Smith, and he labeled what the dominant religion that, that has no, like, church or any, but like a lot of people in church, this is probably what folks believe. It's called moralistic therapeutic deism. And so it's basically God exists and he kind of watches over things. He created stuff and watches over. He wants people to be nice, good, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by every other religion. The central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself, which is probably the real question you have to ask yourself is what is the central goal of my life? Um, then God doesn't need to be particularly involved in one's life and, and except to resolve a problem and good people go to heaven uh, when they die. So basically, I'm not perfect, but it's not fair to expect that anybody should be perfect. But they, whoever they are, whoever your they is, they're much worse than we are. And this is the one half of 1% like <laughs> think that they're going to hell. What we think is that the, the, the next place is going to be better than this place because God's going to give us a slap on the wrist, but they are probably not even going to be there because <laughs> they're really going to get it. You know, and that just doesn't, we don't, need, we don't need Jesus if that's the case. We don't need the Bible if that's the case, but that's not the case. Um, I was watching, so my, my, my sons were home from college. My oldest son had a list of movies that he wants to like catch up on, um, that he wasn't alive when they came out. So like he wants, Fight Club was on it. I've never watched that, uh, but people tell me it's really good. And, um. The Truman Show was on it, and I'm like, I don't really want to watch that again. And then he said Schindler's List. Now, Schindler's List was one of the three most powerful movies I've ever seen in my life, and I don't know what the other two are. Like, I cried like a baby in the theater when I watched Schindler's List. How many people have seen Schindler's List? So, if you haven't seen it, just to review, Oscar Schindler was a German industrialist in the 30s in the build-up to World War II as the Nazi Party was 
taking over Germany. He was not a very good businessman. When the, the German government started oppressing the Jewish population, he saw an opportunity to have cheap labor because they devalued Jewish labor. So he could pay them, I don't know, half or less of what you would pay non-Jewish people. And so he brought him into his factory. And he made, um, at, and I think the movie, from what I've read, is pretty accurate to the story. He started making, like, supplies for the German army, but not at munitions at first. And uh, so he brought them in, and he started making a bunch of money. And, um, and the people, the Jewish people, started to realize, as the oppression got worse from the German government, that Oskar Schindler was making them valuable. So they started thanking him, and he's like, I don't want that. <laughs> like, I'm just using you to make money. Like, you don't need to do that. But then he... He grew to understand what was going on and to appreciate it and to care for the people. And as, like, in this, there's a scene where the, the Jewish ghetto of Krakow uh, in Poland got emptied, and he um, had become friends with a German general, or, and he, he bribed him. And he ends up giving up all his wealth to bribe German officials to keep this, I think it's a thousand Jewish people in a factory and protect them. And... Um, and then at the end of the movie, I mean, he starts making munitions, but he calibrates them so that they don't work. And um, at the end of the movie, the war's over. He protects the Jewish people from the German soldiers that have been assigned to him and t tells them to go away. And then he tells the, the Jewish people, uh, hey, in a couple hours, you'll be free, and I'll be a prisoner of war. I'll be hunted. And they give him a letter of thanks and like commendation, saying this is what he's done. And this is in the movie. I couldn't see if this was real, but they give him a ring that has engraved on it. It's a Hebrew phrase. Um, if a man saves one life, he saves all of mankind. And give it to him. And, in, and again, I don't know if this is true, but in the movie, it's, he breaks down and he's like, I could have done more. And, um, you know, if I'd sold this car, that would be 10 more lives. And it's unbelievable. It's an unbelievable scene. Oscar Schindler, he, he would, goes on and his marriage fails, he fails a business, and he doesn't seem to live a very distinguished life past that. In the movie, he is a womanizer, he is a glutton, he is greedy, but he does one very good thing. And I thought, like getting ready for the sermon, I think this type of stuff anyway, like where is Oscar Schindler? Does Oscar Schindler go to heaven? And what type of monster does not say that Oscar Schindler goes to heaven? And reading this passage, I'm like, well, I don't think Oscar Schindler going to heaven has anything to do with what happened there. And what if heaven is filled with, like, like pretty bad people that every once in a while do a good thing? What if heaven is filled with pretty bad people that every once in a while do a good thing? And you can, you can ask yourself where you are in the spectrum. And I talk about this a lot, like the things that we think and the things that we say and the things that we do betray us. If we had a thought bubble above our heads, we would all be mortified because there's bad stuff going on in here, Right? Um, if you flipped it and said, what if people that are kind of good do bad things every once in a while, what would heaven be like if it's that? And that's just not the story. That's the story that culture lives out, but that is not the story that the Bible tells. Because God is not going to settle for that. That is not the perfect presence of the Lord. He who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. They're going to be new. And he starts with me and you. He starts with us. He is making us new. Next week, during service, we're going we're gonna to baptize some folks. And it's going to be a lot of students. 
that are going to get baptized that have grown up here. It's going to be awesome. Um, if you have not been baptized and you have come to accept what Christ has done for you, like I would encourage you to get baptized and talk to me afterwards. My favorite verse for baptism, and um, maybe 10 years ago, we were in a series on Corinthians, and there's a passage in 2 Corinthians where it says, from now on, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer, but according to the Spirit. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. But the way that's written in the Greek is, if anyone is in Christ, it doesn't say he is a, it just says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. So the author said it's like, if anyone is in Christ, boom, new creation. And that's what happens when we receive what Christ has done for us. It's not what happens when, some, when God does some equation about our good things and our bad things. That's just not how it works, but that's how everybody thinks it works, but that's not how it works. It's when we accept that Christ has done something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. It's not bad people occasionally working up a good thing. It's bad people whose sins have been paid for, but they've been made new people. It's spiritually dead people who've been brought to life. That's the story of the Bible. And Paul goes on, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but against Jesus. He's the propitiation for our sins. That's why the perfect, sinless Jesus goes to the cross and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So let me, is this wishful thinking? No. We take it by faith. And I'd say this, if it's wishful thinking, we already think that it's going to be better. It's just that most people don't have any teeth, any reason, any real reason to, to think this is why it's going to be better. And the gospel gives us every reason to know why it's going to be better because Jesus has come and he's shown us what it looks like for it all to be made new and to live in perfect harmony with the Father. And then he's died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins because we know there's a consequence to the things that we do. We know it kills our relationships and kills our own self and kills our relationship with God. And he's taking care of it. And then he rises from the dead to show us that he has the power over sin and death. And that power is available to us and we're made new. And all that is completed with what God is going to do in the end. And it's going to be a better, not in a way that we can think of, that better than we can possibly conceive of, you know? I think most people think heaven is the place where we finish our bucket list, and I think heaven is where God finishes his bucket list, and we stop worrying about ours, you know? Like, people think, oh, I'll get to heaven, I'll get to play golf at Pebble Beach, which would be cool, I'm going to be honest. Like, I'd like to do that. But it's where you stop thinking that playing golf is the thing that's going to make you super happy in life. I read a, um, or I listened to the, I put a podcast out in the weekly, a week ago Friday, and it turns out it's a series by the guy in New York, John Tyson, that I really want you to listen to. And I listened to the next message this week, and he had a phrase that the Puritans used about the, um, uh, where did I put that in here? The, the deadening effect of innocent pleasure. The deadening effect of innocent pleasures. The like got me. Um, there's a line that C.S. Lewis has about how God finds our desires not too weak, not too strong, but too weak. And that we fool around like children in a slum making mud pies, not being able to imagine 
what a holiday at the sea is like. That God has something that's so much greater for us. And that's what he's giving us. This passage goes on. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light, the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth, they're going to bring their glory into it, but like they're going to, their glory will be submitted to the glory of the Lord, and its gates will never shut, be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. He's not going to settle, but he's going to take the unclean and make us clean through the work of Christ. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So the tree of life that we see in the garden in the beginning is in the city at the end. And that's the promise. And I don't, I mean, we're supposed to take it literally. I don't think we can really know what that's like, but we're supposed to know. It's going to be unbelievable. Now, what do we do in the meantime? And um, I'm going to read through a couple passages and handle this kind of quickly, but there's a lot to be said about this. So Romans 8, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. The sufferings of this present time, you just think about your own sufferings of this present time. Paul had a lot of sufferings of this present time. We have a lot of sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. In order to be able to say that, you have to think a bit about the glory that is going to be revealed to us and then compare it to the sufferings of this present time, which I have not done enough of, and I'm guessing that most of us have not done enough of. But he says, when I compare them, like it diminishes the suffering because that glory is so amazing. And then he says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation itself was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, so first fruits is an agricultural term. It's the first bit of the harvest. And we have the first fruits of the Spirit because the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, if you've accepted what Christ has done for you, is alive in you. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. Uh, we groan, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We groan waiting for that day to come. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so what do we do in the meantime? Man, there's some groaning involved and waiting and hoping. I was um, at a thing uh, last Friday morning or two Friday mornings ago that um, uh, it's called Journey Mates, and it's uh, like a little mini retreat on a Friday morning once a month. And so you go there. Some, some pastors are in my group. I don't know who they are. I never interact with them outside of this thing. We just sit there. Um, someone reads some scripture, and we contemplate it. And then we have an hour, hour and a half to meditate on it. And then we listen to the Spirit for each other. It's a little bit weird, but it's good. It's a good thing to do. And 
it's good in a busy life to just have this time. So I forget what the passage was, but it was about the presence of the Lord. And so my immediate thought was, I don't feel like God's present with me. And then my thought was, you're a horrible pastor. You've just done a series on the presence of God for months and months, and you don't feel the presence with you like here, you know? And then I had an hour to think about it. And um, what I thought about was, and this is why it was really good to slow down, was just some things that have been a struggle like recently and for a while. Anybody got struggles in their life? All right. Like three of you. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. And then I thought the struggle feels to me like um, failure. And the struggle feels like punishment. And then I prayed about that for a while and read some other verses and realized that's just a lie. Like, he calls us, this is struggle because we live in a broken world and he calls us into struggle and he's with us in the midst of the struggle and that's why you have Jesus on a cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows what the struggle is like. And there's a passage I read either just before that meeting or after it from 1 Peter where it says, rejoice, rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And man, I meditated on that for a while and needed it. Like, there's groaning involved with it as we wait for the redemption of our bodies. Are you groaning for the redemption of a relationship? Of a body? Of your soul? Of final deliverance from a sin? If you're groaning and waiting and hoping, you're right where you're supposed to be. If you're happy as a lark and not groaning about anything, you might have a problem because your life is focused in the wrong direction. If you're hopeless about the groaning, you need this passage. So in our waiting, there's going to be groaning and waiting and it should push us towards hope. And one more passage I'll read from 2 Peter 3. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There's groaning, waiting, hoping. There's holding this life loosely, knowing that this is not the end or maybe barely the beginning. And sharing with those near you the hope that you have that Jesus is going to make all things new. I am, um, so uh, there's, there's a pastor that, I, that I've listened to a bunch over the years named Tim Keller who, he's had pancreatic cancer for 
two or three years now, which is a good run with stage four pancreatic cancer. Um, and he was interviewed the last couple, in the last couple weeks I listened to him, and one of the things that he said was um, that he realizes, and he's about 70 now, and he realizes through this last few years that um, he didn't really believe he was going to die. Now, this is, one of the, this is one of the most prominent pastors of our day. He had thyroid cancer about 20 years ago, so he's already dealt with cancer. And he's like, but I, I realize now I didn't really think I was going to die. And I would say that most of us don't really, it's, I don't even know how you grasp that. You know what I mean? Like, I think you got to take some time to grasp that. But most of us probably think that way. And, um, and I thought back to uh, when we, the year we started the church, I had a heart surgery. And so we started the church in October, and the, so the plans were already in motion, you know. And in April, I found out I had a heart murmur, which the lady did an echocardiogram and said, You've, you have a bad heart valve, and it needs to be replaced. And uh, so we're in our office. I'm like, cool. Like, now? Like, can we do that here? <laughs> She's like, um, you don't need to talk to a surgeon. And, and it was open heart surgery, so I learned what that was, and... Um, I, the doctor was a Duke, like the best doctor is anywhere, you know, but he said there's a 2 to 4% mortality rate on the surgery, which he had to say, but I was 35 and healthy, and most people are a lot older, so it wasn't 2 to 4%, but you tell me 2 to 4%, I'm doing math, you know, and so I asked him how often you do the surgery, and he said uh, twice a day. I'm like, okay, so every two and a half, three weeks, you leave somebody on the table. When's the last time you left somebody on the table? Because if it's two and a half or three weeks, we're rescheduling this, you know, for a week down the road, um, I prayed to God. I said, hey, if you don't want me to plant a church, you don't have to kill me. You can just tell me. And like, we'll stop. And I wrote a letter to my three small children. Johnny wasn't around yet. You know, in the event that, you just start thinking about it. I thought about it more than I thought about it before. I still didn't think about it all that much. Um, I talked to Matt Noble this week. Uh, he's, he said that we were talking, he's, and he was up here telling a story a few months ago. He's, had, he's been in cardiac arrest seven times. You're talking about the DeMar Hamlin thing, the football player? Like, that was Matt seven times. And three open heart surgeries? Six open heart surgeries. I was like, man, you must think about this different. And he said it was more about the journey than the destination. He's convinced about the destination. It's just how you get from here to there that is a little nerve-wracking. Like, fair enough. He's thought about more than... I would guess any of us. And, um, and then the last couple weeks, uh, there is a woman who, a family that was at the church for a number of years. And at the beginning of COVID, they decided to move on to another church. And, and she had had ovarian cancer about five years ago. And as a church, we walked through that with her. And um, it always seemed like a likelihood that it was going to come back. And I don't know, six six, 12 months ago, it came back, and, um, and so they live down the street from me, and I haven't been in, they're pretty private, you know, I pry, I've texted with Jeff a little bit, but I'll walk by their house a lot and pray, and uh, I texted him last week, I was like, hey, just tell Chandy that we love her, and we're praying for her, and um, And I, but I thought in a way I've never thought it before, like if I could sit with her, what I want to tell her, in part to encourage her that my faith says she's about to go to a really good place. Like I don't know how death works, 
I don't know how to think about it. I have thought more about it. And like I've read books about near-death experiences and they always talk about light. And I don't know if that's it or not. Right now I'm thinking about it like a roller coaster and that when you go up a roller coaster, like up, you know what I mean? Like the chick 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 and then you get to the top and you're like, and then you go down. I think that's probably a little bit, like that's how I think I'm going to be thinking about it is like, all right, woo, you know? Like this is going to be fun, but I don't know what it's going to be like. Um, but I want to say to her, hey, when you get there, I don't know if you can remember stuff like when you get there, but when you see Jesus, can you tell him that I love him? Which, I can tell Jesus that I love him right now, and by faith I know that he hears me, but it just seems different if she's going to be there. And that's what my head said to say to Jesus, because um, I'm not great at telling people that I love him. Uh, my heart said, tell him I'm sorry. Um, which might not be the right, like that's messed with me a little bit too. But man, I just thought like, She's about, like, there's a veil between life and death that is paper thin that we walk on every day. And there's nothing so sure as unless Christ comes back that we will pass through that veil at some point. And yet it's the thing we don't think about very much. And she's right there, in fact, through. Uh, Friday night, she passed away. I don't talk about this enough. I guess for a long time, I didn't really grow up churched. Um, the, the church just didn't talk about what was going on here, just talked about there, heaven and hell. And so we swung the pendulum pack to talking about here, but not talking about there. And we really need to think about there more often. Not to like scare you out of hell or anything. I mean, I don't think that's, I think he wants to woo us. And I think this passage is meant to woo us. I think in order to be properly wooed, you have to let go of some stuff here. But you'll let yourself be wooed. I'm going to ask you to, to close your eyes and bow your heads for a minute. And the band can come back up. And we're going to continue in worship and take communion. We try every week to be pretty explicit about our understanding of the gospel. And that this is not about what we have done for God which is the default religion of our hearts, that we need to do enough for God. And the bad news of the Bible is that you cannot do enough. The great news of the Bible is that he has done everything that needed to be done for you. And the wages of sin is death, and the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so if you are here, if you are listening, and you have not accepted the gift that is offered to you in Christ, and this is not like, it's not wishful thinking. It's a person. It's the life, death, and resurrection of a man named Jesus 2,000 years ago. And no one knows where the body is because the body ascended into heaven. If you have not accepted that, let this be the day that you accept what Christ has done for you. And let whoever brought you here know, let me know, because you're a spiritual infant and you need help, and that's what the church is for and this is your family, and let us baptize you next week. If this is your day, let that be your day. And uh, in a minute, we're going to take communion. We'll be up here with the, with the bread and the cup, which represents the body of Christ that was broken for us and the blood of Christ that is shed for us. And so if you've received what Christ has done for you, we invite you to come up and to take part 
in, in the body and blood of Christ and remembering his sacrifice. I'm going to finish with, um, this is Randy Alcorn talking about um, the end of Narnia, of C.S. Lewis's um, series of Narnia. He says, in the last chapter of The Last Battle, Aslan gives the children shocking news that's really ultimately good news. He says, there was a real railway accident. Remember, that's how the book began. It seemed like there was an accident, but they didn't know. And Aslan says, your father and your mother and all of you are, as you used to call it, in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream has ended. This is the morning. And as Aslan spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after, but for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Father, thank you that your words are trustworthy and true, that we can have confidence, not just because you've given us the Bible and your words, but because of Jesus, because he conquered sin and death, Lord. Help us to spend less time making mud pies in Islam and more time focused on the vacation by the sea that you have offered, God. Help us in the groaning and the waiting and help us to lean into the hope that is sure that you've given us, Lord. Thank you that you are good and you have not left us to wonder. But you've told us what is true and what will happen. Give us faith, Lord. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.